Welcome to the free podcast, Stop Cravings Before They Start, with John Deyard. Tonight, Dr. John will be discussing the underlying cause of cravings and provide us with some ways to figure out what it is our body is trying to tell us when we're craving certain foods. He'll be doing a lecture for about 45 minutes and then devote the rest of the time to your questions. Here are a few notes on how to interact on this call. To type in questions if you're watching online, go to livespa.com and the first article below the banner is called Episode 15, Stop Cravings Before They Start. This is the viewing page for this call. Here you can submit questions in the gray box below the video or just watch the podcast live. Please do not type questions in on our YouTube page because we will not see those questions. To ask questions verbally, you'll need to be listening on your phone. To listen on your phone, dial 425-440-5100 and enter the PIN number 124-337-POUND. Again, that's 425-440-5100, PIN number 124-337-POUND. To ask a question live, you'll press star two. If Dr. John calls on you, he'll address you by the last name and city or state that your phone is listed under. So make a mental note right now of the name and city or state that your phone may be registered under. There's no difference or preference on our side for verbal or typed questions. We spend equal time on both types of questions coming in. If you registered for this live event, you'll receive an email tomorrow with a recap of the podcast, as well as a link to watch, listen, and or download the podcast. We have some upcoming podcasts. Our next is Freedom from Fatigue in um, January, on Monday, January 12th. And in February, we have Change Your Life with Nature's Harvest on Monday, February 9th. You can sign up for both of these and any other podcasts on our website at lifespa.com under the Learn tab by clicking Podcast under the Event column. And without further ado, I'll pass it over to Dr. John, and we'll get started. Thank you. everyone. Welcome to our talk on cravings and uh, <clears throat> what are we going to do about cravings and what cravings are and why do they come and how do we get rid of them. You know, obviously cravings we've talked about are the body's request for something. And I think when you look at Cravings from the simplest perspective, you have to ask, you know, what is the body craving and why is it craving that? What is the body lacking that it's craving whatever it might be, dark chocolate, coffee, some type of stimulant, go shopping, whatever it might be. And that's sort of my discussion tonight is what are some of those things and why we crave a lot. I mean, it probably all started millions of years ago we had our first taste of mother's milk which was sweet 
and the brain got its first taste of sugar and it really liked it. And as a result, <clears throat> we've been craving and seeking out sugar, hybridizing things to be sweeter since then. And, you know, it, it took a long time, millions of years in SAS, but um, we finally figured out how to get sugar as our main source of fuel. <clears throat> and sugar, what it does is it activates uh, receptors in your brain called dopamine receptors. So it's something like when you hit that sledgehammer thing at the carnival and the, it hits the bell, that's the brain getting lit up. And the brain, when it gets lit up with dopamine, it, gets, it activates the pleasure centers, and we love it. We want more of that shortly thereafter. The problem with dopamine activators, which is the I gotta have it right now hormone, is that they're short-lived. They don't last very long. So quickly, shortly thereafter, you're craving more another stimulant, more of the same stimulant, one or two or three shots of espresso. I want to shop for bigger and better things. I need another dessert, more sweets, and I find myself addicted to uh, finding a certain level of stimulation outside of myself. And this actually has become our culture when you really think about it. And I want you all to ask yourself this kind of very important first question. What do you go to when you're stressed out? What do you crave when you're tired or under a lot of stress or under a lot of pressure? Do you crave dark chocolate, coffee, candy? Do you crave money, shopping? Um, what are your go-to cravings? When you're under stress, your brain pulls down a menu and it looks at the things to get me out of this feeling of yuck to feeling way up here and I'm going to find a way to get there. The problem is, is that dopamine is a self-limiting hormone. The more you stimulate it, the more stimulant you need to activate that same high pleasure center. And we find ourselves stimulating ourselves to a point where we cannot sustain the energy. We stimulate ourselves to make energy in many ways that we don't really have. So the body goes into a certain level of debt to sort of make the stimulation, the pleasure center thing happen. And afterwards, when we crash, we keep crashing deeper and deeper into that debt. And then we find ourselves craving more and craving more, and then it becomes sort of an uncontrollable thing. But cravings isn't always just donuts. It isn't just dark chocolate. It is, you know, so many things in our life. And when you look around our culture, you know, having a great job, you know, is a reward. Um, having a successful marriage, a successful company, a successful job, a successful children, you know, sending your kids to the right, best, super wonderful college. These are all things that we do in a very subtle way to elicit the reward, that approval that we started, you know, seeking when we were very, very young. We all are hardwired to want the approval of mom and dad. And that was the first craving that we had. We wanted mom to be the first one was mother's milk and you wanted more and more of that. Um, <clears throat> but the first craving we had was that approval. And that approval was to make sure we felt safe and secure. It kept the species alive. We didn't care if mom and dad liked us or cared about us or watched over us. We would have all wandered into the jungle, got eaten by lions a long, long time ago. There'd be no people here at all. So there's a hard wire for us to want the approval 
of our parents. And then we, we kind of seem to, we've never let go of that need of approval from outside. You know, in the animal kingdom, lions get older, mom says, okay, I'm going to go north, you're going to go south, you're on your own, uh, I'll see you in the next life. It's over. But humans just replace mom and dad and that approval with other stuff. Girlfriends, boyfriends, candy cokes, shop, new cars, fancy clothes, new shoes, shopping, coffee, stimulants, houses, big jobs. You look at our culture and it's so much of it is uh, stimulated and, and TV and the media just makes it so incredibly enticing for our poor little brain and our poor little dopamine receptors to resist. Can't do it. So most of us get somewhat sucked in. And I wrote an article once called, um, What is Your Emotional Body Type? And um, it's an article where it actually asks questions about, are you, how sattvic are you, how rajastic are you, how tamasic are you? So what does that mean? It's sort of the Ayurvedic kind of uh, framework for cravings. Sattva is that heartfelt, giving, loving, caring, not really needing anything. Like the baby is in the crib and it's happy and it's just, you know, having a wonderful time, doesn't really need anything other than food, things like that, but generally it's extremely content until the brain develops senses and stimulation. You got your first taste of, of ice cream, your first experience with toys, and all of a sudden the brain started becoming stimulated to get satisfied from outside of itself. And we created a whole world of being stimulated, and that's called a rajasic experience of life. And then many of us stimulate ourselves to the point where we just are not, it does, the video games aren't doing it for me. The scary, violent, horror movies aren't stimulating me into that level of joy Anymore, And all those, by the way, have the study to increase dopamine receptors, pleasure centers, you swim after a scary movie in a pool of endorphins and you're sort of high as a kite. We crave, our brain knows his scary movies make me happy for a couple hours after. I love that feeling. And that's well documented. So, so we, the brain is pretty smart. It knows where to go to get that high. And so we have this sattvic, which is kind of experience of life, which is just high because it's your nature to be loving, giving, joyful, and kind. Think of it like the sun. It just gives love. doesn't mean anything in return. Then there's this rajastic experience with stimulation and the return on that investment. I love you. I need someone you to love me back equally. And then, or I need to go to get a scary movie or get stimulated. And when that stimulation stops working, I tend to check out, retreat, and unfortunately become what's called tamasic, where I wall off or numb myself with drugs or alcohol or marijuana. I do something to just check out and retreat from the world. And that is dangerous because even though you're safer in that place, you're actually very, very far away from your heart, from the love, from the real true joy that you truly seek. Because you have your heart, your sattva, then, it, then the body responds to that by creating stimulation to sort of protect you, and then we find ourselves in a tamasic world of protection. And you have to kind of get out of the tamasic box, through the stimulated world, back to an experience of contentment and joy. And that is sort of the goal when you really want to resolve cravings. Now, so take the questionnaire, and, and it's really fun because you can see 
in what aspect of your life are, are you sattvic, and there'll be many of those. In what aspect of your life are you rajasic, and there'll be many of those. And what aspect of your life are you tamasic, are you walled up. And the tamasic ones you want to start to scrub first. You want to you know, get in and look and see, why am I checking out in this particular area of my life? And it's really a fascinating uh, study, and it's sort of the original Ayurvedic look at cravings. Okay, so now we know that we have this thing called dopamine, which kind of has, you know, humans sort of gone wild for the stimulation of our senses. There's a hormone called oxytocin, which is um, the exact opposite of dopamine. It's stimulated when moms and dads bond with each other and they care for each and, and um, uh, or moms and dads bond with their child. And that giving, during the birth process, this hormone is secreted by all three involved, mom, dad, and the baby. And it's a bonding hormone that bonds them for life. It's also stimulated when you give love, care for other people. But there's a catch. You have to give unconditionally. You can't give with an expectation. You can't give with a need for a reward. You can't give with them to making sure that they love you back. It has to be free. And when you do that, you find that the, what you're really searching for in life is to give fully, to love fully, to experience yourself loving, which if you believe that the nature of the human body is love, and you can express that fully without needing something in return to make you happy, then that's the deepest level of contentment, is to love the love that you are. Now some folks say, well, I don't know if we are love inside. Well, the interesting study is that we have microbes, right, in our body. 90% of our human cells are microbial. We now know that the microbes thrive, proliferate, and, and become very healthy. The good microbes, when they're, when they're in, in a sophic environment, a loving, caring, giving environment. When they're in a stressful environment, the good bugs actually disappear and die. So, sort of interesting that 90% of us actually thrives in a loving environment, and we don't really know what happens to our human cells in that in that uh, in that experience. So, so there's some interesting studies that sort of you know sort of support the idea that maybe we are our true nature is to be loving and joyful and kind. And if you do that, your cravings don't exist. However, the body has gotten addicted to these cravings, right? The body is very addictive. So now the brain needs that high and low. So we start craving more sugar, more sweets, more foods on a regular basis. We have diets that have supported this concept. Eat six meals a day. Even though they're healthy meals, you're giving the body a meal and a snack and a meal and a snack and a meal and a snack. And the body simply burns for fuel the meal and the snack and the meal and the snack and the meal and the snack. So that's not really great for burning your fat, which is stable fuel, calm fuel, long-lasting fuel, sleep through the night fuel, non-emergency fuel. That's the fuel that we want to burn. If you're eating a meal and a snack and a meal and a snack, you're going to, sooner rather than later, you're going to be needing a meal every two to three hours. And we have, as a culture, lost our ability to be really good fat burners. We've lost our ability to make energy last through the day. And now a lot of us need our snack, nibble, snack, meal, snack, meal, snack, meal, snack. God forbid we take away the snack and all of us, you know, have no energy. Studies have shown that human beings, in fact, actually thrive when they don't eat very much. Cells live longer without food. 
cells make more energy, the mitochondria make more energy when you don't have food. So we are clearly, based, based on lots of pretty good research, genetically wired to thrive when we don't eat. It was a many, many years, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years as hunter-gatherers, you know, feasting or famining, not having food for a long period of time. We're wired to do really well. The average American diet eats 100% more food than we need. So there's a, we eat 100% that we need, and we need the extra 100% that we don't actually need. And it's in that 100% that the body uses to store its fat and create, it has to get rid of that extra fuel, and that's where the problems lie. And that's what overwhelms the brain with, with pleasure, hormones and dopamine receptors become activated and leaves us wanting more. So one of the ways to, to first way, most important way, to get yourself to, to get rid of your cravings is to be a better fat burner and not be a sugar burner. Sugar goes up and down and up and down and up and down. Every time it goes up, you feel better. Every time it goes down, you feel worse. But every time it goes down, it triggers a, oh my God, emergency response. I don't have any energy, so I have to stimulate myself to get more energy out of this hole, and that depletes my adrenals, it depletes my reserves, and it leaves me more fatigued and more exhausted and craving more and more and more. Does that make sense? So, but fat burns stable long-lasting. It's a stable, lasting fuel. Burns for, you know, ideally you're supposed to have an early supper and sleep all night long with nothing, break the fast in the morning. That's like if you have supper at 6 and have breakfast at 7, that's 13 hours of your day fasting. Most folks couldn't do that anymore. There's one study I read a long time ago that said that human beings were supposed to burn fat all night long, break the fast with breakfast. But humans don't do that anymore. They never go into fat metabolism. They go into the sleep without burning fat. So they don't sleep as deeply. They don't wake up as refreshed, or they wake up as a, you know in the middle of the night hungry. Or and they don't maybe even know that they're hungry. But that's what gets their nervous system out of the sleep state is not having the ability to be a good fat burner. So you really do want to be a good fat burner. And it doesn't have anything to do with how fat or skinny you are. It isn't about that. It's the kind of fuel that you burn. And on the planet, there's two kinds, sugar and fat. Proteins don't really do it much energy making at all, a little, but not really much. So it's really proteins, and, I mean fats and carbohydrates that are the two sources of fuel, or sugar and fats are the two sources of fuel, not your protein. So if you want to be a good fat burner, think of it this way. Let's have breakfast, and then have nothing all the way till lunch, and lunch, and nothing all the way till supper, and supper, and nothing all the way to uh, breakfast in the morning. Three meals a day with no snacks. Do you think you can do that? If you can't, and it's like, oh my God, there's no way. I, I've been eating six meals a day. I need my meal. A lot of times folks have become so addicted to eating and nibbling and eating and nibbling that they have to have food. So if you really are that addicted to, and you've lost the ability to burn fat because fat's long-lasting fuel, if you were a good fat burner, you could not eat all day long. Fasting would be a piece of cake for you. Missing meals would be a piece of cake because you're a fat burner. That's how our, our genetics allowed us to survive so many millions of years without always having three square meals a day. So the idea 
is that if you were having a meal and nothing in between, you would burn fat in between that meal. If you had lunch and nothing all the way to supper, you'd burn fat. If you had supper and nothing all the way to breakfast, you'd reset fat metabolism, you'd burn fat, long-lasting, calm, stable fuel. You'd feel better, right? Make sense? But if you have a meal, breakfast, and then some fruit, and then lunch, fruit's not bad for you, but you will burn the fruit instead of your fat in between breakfast and lunch. If you have lunch, and then you have some almonds, and then you have supper, almonds aren't bad for you, they're very healthy for you, but you didn't burn your fat that day. So you can have six healthy meals, but if you don't give the body a reason to be a good fat burner, it won't burn fat. It's that simple. And it won't burn it very, very well. And I have had so many patients come to me over the years who were, you know, feeling terrible. They were told to eat six meals a day because they had hypoglycemia, ups and downs in energy from having, you know, breaking, waking up in the morning with a cup of coffee and then crashing and burning and having another cup of coffee, then crashing and burning and having a Diet Coke and a, and a salad in front of their computer because they're trying to lose weight. And then that gives them a little burst of energy and then they pass dark chocolate around the office at two or three and then they need a Starbucks for them to drive home because they're falling asleep. And then by the end of the day, they find themselves drinking a glass of wine to settle down because they've been going like this all day long. Every time they go up, you sort of feel good. Every time they go down, you sort of feel bad. And that bad is an emergency response that depletes your reserves, your, your, your adrenals, and your ability to handle stress, and eventually exhaustion. And then the brain goes, I feel I'm in this big time hole, and I need to pull down that menu again. And give me, what can I get or do to get me out of that hole, and therefore we have cravings. It's that simple. So the simplest way to break the fundamental uh, cause of cravings is to get away from six meals a day. If you have to do four initially, that's fine. And then do three, and then see if you can get to three good meals a day. Do your very best to make lunch the larger meal of the day. That helps a lot. Do your best to relax and dine and take time when you eat your food. That's a huge thing. Um, we don't realize how important it is to relax and take time. We now we know that the that when you eat your food and you're on the run and gobbling and eating here, that when you're under stress and you're eating your food, very very few cultures, if any, historically ever ate when they were stressed out. You know, old Vedic saying is if you eat standing up on the run, stressed out. Death looks over your shoulder. The idea was you would never, ever eat uh, in a stressful situation. You would just skip that meal. It would be better to skip the meal than eat while you're stressed. Because stress triggers the sympathetic fight-or-flight nervous system. When the sympathetic fight-or-flight nervous system is activated, all of your digestive ability completely turns off. This is not a time to eat. It's time to run away from a bear, climb a tree, and save your life. Okay? So, so neurologically, when you're stressed, your digestion is being dialed down and shut off. When you're relaxed and calm and you're dining, the parasympathetic nervous system begins to become more active, and that's the system that turns on your digestive system. 
So there's a lot of logic between taking time to relax and eat your food than eating stressed out. And since we know that 90% of the cells in the human body, trillions of microbes, literally live in your gut and they are super vulnerable to stress, then, then, and you want to feed and support and proliferate good microbes, then being relaxed and calm with your food makes a huge difference. They did one study where they took a container of yogurt and put it on a table, and they screamed and yelled, had this emotional reaction, and the microbes in the yogurt on the table had a significant shift based on the emotional outbreak that took place outside of the can of yogurt. <clears throat> Imagine what happens to the microbes inside of you. So three meals a day, no snacks, that's critical, okay? Um, four meals, you have to start with that, but then go to three meals. <clears throat> now, what happens along the way is that the blood sugar that we have um, becomes unstable. You know, historically, 10, 20, 30 years ago, many of you remember that everybody had hypoglycemia, highs and lows in blood sugar. Highs and lows. So the medicinal diet for hypoglycemia was eat six meals a day. It's partly where that diet came from, from the medicinal diet to get people out of the super highs and the super lows. We were told these six little meals a day, and it does work. It's a medicinal diet. It was never meant to be the rest of your life. It was meant to get on that diet, get out of the hypoglycemia, and get back to eating three meals a day, like everybody else does on the planet. And at that time, everybody else on the planet was eating three meals a day, and everybody was telling in America that snacking was bad for you. Don't snack, you'll ruin your dinner. Your moms and dads probably told you for your whole life. That's what I heard. Now, the problem is that when you, when you snack um, and you eat three meals a day, uh, when you're snacking, you lose the ability to make uh, energy last. And the body's blood sugar becomes unstable. And as a result of the, 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 you know, the coffee and this hypoglycemia, we have created diets to mitigate that. You know, the, the, the grazing diet is partly one of those. At the same time, bodybuilders were bodybuilding was becoming a very big thing, and the health clubs adopted a policy that they still practice to this day, which is eat six meals a day. And that came from the bodybuilders in the 1970s, who were eating protein, little protein meals to, to make sure they didn't get any, to make sure that they would burn all the fat around their muscle and not have any real nutrition at all. Remember, protein doesn't provide energy, it builds muscle. So they were building this muscle, giving it just a, a very little bit of fuel, and they, become, they became ripped in bodybuilders. And everybody in the health club sort of, ooh, that looks great, that's the new way of eating, that makes you ripped and healthy. So that sort of became, that, that eating little meals all day long, because protein doesn't give you any energy, so you eat little protein meals all day long, you're exhausted. These guys were wasted. So they had to eat little meals all day long, otherwise they'd fall off their chair, literally. So they, that became, that was adopted by the health clubs, and it's still practiced today. Most of where you hopefully, you don't see the magazine citing talking about six meals a day much anymore, thank goodness. But they still say it in the health club, and they've been saying it for the last 30, 40 years. It's sort of, hopefully, days are numbered. That, the logic of that makes no sense. If you, we are hardwired to make energy last for a long period of time. And part of getting rid of your cravings is to be a good fat burner so you have the ability to have endurance for a long period of time. And that 
you know, hunter-gatherers didn't walk around thinking of dark chocolate and donuts and Starbucks and things like that. They had a higher level of fat in their diet, which helped them have more sustainability. So that's one of the ways that we want to think about uh, increasing our ability to not crave, is to increase our ability to have fat in the diet. But if you put more fat in the diet, you're going to actually have to make more bile to gobble it up and take it the fat to the toilet. Now, the more now the the more bile you make, it's great because the bile packs a lot of toxins in your liver, and when it goes into your intestinal tract, it cleans up your intestinal tract as well. But most of us don't have enough fiber in our diet to hook onto the bile and take the bile and all the toxins to the toilet. So, in the average American, ninety-four percent of that bile gets reabsorbed back to the liver and creates more toxicity. So here's the thing, yes, eating more fat in your diet is going to give you a more sustainable energy and make you not crave sugar because there's two sources of fuel, sugar and fat, right? So if you give it sugar and fat, now you got the 200% thing. You've got 100% more fuel than you need. It's not going to be good. So if you have, so we have to do a couple of things, right? Step one, if you have sugar and fat in your diet, one of them has got to go. We've got to get rid of the simple sugars and the processed sugars and the refined carbohydrates. But if you eat more fat, you've got to increase your fiber. So the other thing that sort of leaps off the page when you look at ancient humans, they had 100 grams of fiber per day. We have 15, 20 maybe. It's five times, at least five times more fiber than we have. The fiber hooks onto the bile, takes the bile to the toilet, force your liver to make this year's, this week's version of bile, which is very important because the bile is the toxic remover, Pac-Man gobbling up toxins in the liver and the intestine, cleaning house all the time. So any more fat in your diet is a great thing, but if you don't have enough fiber to take it to the toilet, those fats will gobble up lots of toxins and take them to the liver, put them into the blood, and create sort of more problems. So, so when we start to get rid of the cravings, we have a few steps we have to get through. Number one, get rid of the sugars. Get rid of the uh, processed carbohydrates, processed sweets, the refined carbohydrates. You want to increase some of the good fats in your diet. A teaspoon of coconut oil with every meal. Increase your intake of good quality uh, omega-3 fatty acids like, uh, uh, or even fish oils, which are high in DHA and uh, EPA. DHA is really good for your brain. It's the brain-derived neurotropic factor that, that as we went from sort of apes to hunter-gatherers, we started eating more animal meats, and we got more of this DHA fat that literally, according to the research, tripled our brain size. So, so, and I would imagine they didn't walk around craving all day long because they were, had to go oftentimes days without eating. So those good fats are very good. But if you eat the good fats with the bad sugars, with no fiber in your diet, and you don't exercise, you might actually make this whole thing worse. So, so... It's a sort of a graceful curve to reboot your body to be a long-lasting energy burner, fat burner. <clears throat> and so that's why I want you to be cautious about just going and eating more fat. Olive oil seems to be one of those oils that you can put on 
a lot of things after you cook them. Don't cook with olive oil if you can help it. Cook with ghee and coconut oil and butter, but add olive oil. Good quality olive oil makes a huge difference as well. Um, for that to be really good for your ability to burn that olive oil as a fuel, as a fat. Um, so those are some, some techniques that are very important. I also think that you have to remember that, you know, we have an epidemic of uh, <clears throat> blood sugar issues in this country. We have, uh, you know, one-third of the American population, which is 100 million people, are pre-diabetic as we speak. 90% of those folks who are pre-diabetic don't know that they are pre-diabetic. <clears throat> and so a lot of times we have created such an addiction to sugar, and not just sugar, though, because if you take, you know, white bread, okay, we know that's bad, but organic whole wheat bread that you buy at the grocery store that has got seven grain organic whole wheat bread from a reputable um, store. If you look at the glycemic index, which is how quickly that bread becomes sugar, on average, organic whole wheat bread in the supermarket has a glycemic index somewhere in the 70s. The glycemic index of white table sugar is 59. So that's the part we don't really get. There are these hidden sugars that keep activating those dopamine receptors. They're everywhere. Um, so when you take, uh, a, you know, when you make a, a, a turkey sandwich, for example, you have two pieces of, of organic whole wheat bread. It's like having two tablespoons of white sugar to that extent. It's, and that rises your sugar and then it dumps you. And it rises your sugar and it dumps you. Then, when it does, when we do that a lot, we crave more food, nibble, 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 snack, snack, snack. But what happens is the body, the, when you rise the sugar, the body produces a hormone called insulin to get that sugar and put it into the cells, right? But if we keep doing that and we keep taking sugar and putting it into the cells, the cells say, that's enough. I can't take it anymore. I don't want any more sugar. I can't tolerate another jelly bean. Can't do it. So the cells become resistant to letting the insulin push the sugar into the cells. It's called insulin resistance. And now your cells are craving energy because they don't have any, but they won't take sugar. And that means your, your body is fatiguing, so you're tired. The brain gets the message that I'm tired and I crave more. And I start craving other things, coffee, you know, other types of stimulants, maybe even activity, shopping, things like that to somehow derail or redirect my mind to get stimulated in some other, in some other way. So we have this thing called pre-diabetes in a country which is simply epidemic and, and, and uh, I'm a real big fan of becoming proactive and taking your own blood sugar. If you have a little bit of a sugar addiction, you have a craving for sugar, a sweet tooth, or even for chips and things and salty foods, same thing by the way. Um, <clears throat> we tend to have a, we can te we tend to have a, a situation where uh, it can create pre-diabetes. Now the normal range when you take your blood sugar, your fasting glucose, is between 70 and 100 milligrams per deciliter. That's what you look for on a blood test. And about 20 years ago, the high number that was normal was 120. They lowered it to 118, they lowered it to 115, they lowered it to 110, because these numbers 
were still causing diabetic issues, real severe problems. They lowered it to 110, down to 100 where it is now. But the new studies show that, that the number hasn't gone low enough, that 100 million Americans are over 100. But the new studies show that just over 85 milligrams per deciliter in the morning fasting increases your risk of dying of a heart attack or stroke by 40%. Another study published in the New England Journal of Medicine just last August showed that people whose numbers are 90 or 95, still within the normal range, have a significant increased risk of getting Alzheimer's so, or cognitive decline or, or dementia, which means that, the, that, that sugar is sort of, when it goes high within today's normal levels, are still quite dangerous. There's an enzyme in your brain called the insulin-degrading enzyme. So if you have too much sugar in your blood, the brain loves sugar, by the way, but not too much and not too little. It has to be just right, just like the three little bears. It has to be just right. But if it's too high, the brain uses the insulin-degrading enzyme to get rid of the extra sugar so you don't have any major problems. It's really straightforward. The only problem is the insulin-degrading enzyme is also used by the brain to get rid of plaque that causes Alzheimer's and dementia. So if the body for the next 30 years, right, is triggering using the insulin-degrading enzyme to get rid of the sugar and leaving the plaque, that doesn't fare well for the epidemic rise of Alzheimer's and dementia on our planet or in this country. So we got to start thinking, i got to take proactive steps now to get my blood sugar in order. And that, if you get that stable, you're, if you're high, your brain is always thinking about sugar. If you're high, you generally have insulin resistance. I mean, the sugar is high, but the, but the, but the cells won't take it. So the brain says, I don't feel it. And the cells go, I don't want it. So it stays in your blood and does all kinds of damage. And the last thing it does, the big damaging thing, in addition to raising cholesterol, it, your, your belly is four times more sensitive to, to insulin and that sugar than anything, than, than putting fat anywhere else. So the fat in your belly is four times as sensitive to insulin and stress than like the fat on your arm. So we gain weight around our belly, right? Um, and it also does this thing called glycation. It glycates. What glycation means is that that the sugar, excess sugar in your blood and, and, and the uh, proteins in your blood, particularly collagen and elastin, makes your skin kind of nice, clump together. And when they clump together, they stick together. And when they stick together, they clog your arteries, they damage your arteries. They're the pre they found these, these, these glycation end products, these damaging agents at the site of cancers, arthritis, Alzheimer's, degenerative disease, inflammation. I mean, they find these, these advanced glycation end products everywhere. It's like the smoking gun. That's what is underlying the degenerative process, which means that the first domino of the degenerative accelerated aging process is your blood sugar. And one of the manifestations of a blood sugar that's a little out of whack is cravings. So if we can get rid of your cravings by getting your blood sugar as a stable and make you better a fat burner, we solve not just the problem with cravings, we solve a lot of problems. And that's what is so critically important. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about stress. And I should say also, by the way, that a lot of what I'm talking about is available in more detail, of course, on the articles and videos in my newsletter. We have like 400 articles and a couple hundred videos on that are all free for you. But there's also two free ebooks that might really help you. One of the free ebooks is the blood sugar ebook, and it tells you all about blood sugar. So if you have a little bit of a sweet tooth and you're concerned about that, 
then then you know then uh, read that ebook. It's really compelling. And think about getting a glucometer. We I sell them to my patients because they're so important. You take that blood sugar in the morning and you see, you know, is it 85, 95, or 105. If it's 105, you go, oh, what did I have for dinner last night? I had a glass of wine and a dessert. Late. Okay, well, that didn't do very well. My blood sugar didn't like that in the morning. The next day, you go to bed early, have a good meal, very little carbohydrates at night, and you wake up, your numbers are back in the 80s again. So you get this instant feedback. And since it's the first domino of the degenerative process, do we want to wait a year then you go see your doctor, and your doctor says, you know, your blood sugar is a little bit high, cut out on the desserts. It's way more serious than that, way more serious. You've got to take real responsibility and be proactive. So you have this instant, I love it, I take my blood sugar almost every morning because I get feedback on what I did right or what I did wrong, um, which is great. So it keeps me, you know, I have a sweet tooth, so it keeps me from uh, dipping into the candy bag as much. Um, so, so it's important to have that feedback. That's one thing. And the other ebook that we have is called the Weight Balancing Ebook, and that's about how to go from from four meals to three meals to two meals, and to help get your body. It's a weight balancing program, but it's also a sugar burning reset fat burning program, which I think you would all love. And they're both for free. They're like forty, fifty page ebooks. They're really well done. Uh, so I encourage you to take a look at that. Um, the other thing that's you know no doubt underlying um, uh, our, our problem. Two things that I want to talk about before I start taking some questions. Uh, uh, one is a balanced meal. What is a, a balanced meal? I've got a, a bunch of articles coming out in the next couple of weeks about paleo and comparing paleo and the pros and the cons and the, the logic and the rationale about that. So I, I want to talk about, so I'm not going to talk about that right now, but what is a, a balanced meal? A balanced meal is not a salad. Balanced meal is not a smoothie. Balanced meal is not, you know, drinking some meal. You don't drink your meals. That has never happened. Hunter-gatherers didn't have, which means we're talking about hunter-gatherers because it's, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of years of genetics that make up who we are and how we can digest. And they didn't have blenders. So they didn't drink their food. They chewed their food. And studies show that when you chew, your brain chemistry changes. You become smarter. I mean, kids here in Colorado actually are given chewing gum when they take standardized tests because they're actually studies so they're smarter when they actually chew gum, which is interesting. So chewing really makes a difference. So if you want to get a, a shake with a little micronutrient in it, fine, but that's part of a meal, not the whole meal. A balanced meal is a protein, a starch, and a carbohydrate, or, and, a, and, a, and vegetables together. Uh, I like the idea, although it varies seasonally, about half your plate vegetables, a quarter starch, and a quarter protein. So it could be chicken and rice, a vegetable with a salad, that's a perfectly balanced meal. Uh, it could be oatmeal with uh, nuts and seeds with some steamed broccoli as well. Those are a balanced breakfast. We have this aversion to eating anything green at breakfast time, and most cultures around the world do it all the time. It's sort of weird. Uh, it's a very good to have some vegetable in the morning uh, with your breakfast. It's completely fine. So always think about balanced meals, okay? So hopefully that'll help you as well. And then the last thing that is, you know, the most important thing, no doubt, is stress. Um, and uh, um, stress is 
the number one thing that takes out our good microbiology that we now know directly relates to our blood sugar, and without good blood sugar, we have cravings. Stress impacts our microbiology, and that affects our, our, our ability to make neurotransmitters that support our mood. We have real good science to support that our mood stability comes from our microbiology, who make the neurotransmitters, the serotonin and dopamine, that make us happy and content and pleasurable, or pleasure. Um, so stress is really important. So it's really interesting that, you know, we have so much research on meditation then it's so compelling. The study's shown that the telomeres, which measure aging and predisposition to disease, literally increase by 30, one study, 40% in another study when you meditate. Meditating is such a powerful tool for your health that non-meditating is really related to, you know, the damaging of smoking cigarettes or doing something really bad for you. So it's really important for us to, to actually understand the value of meditation and to kind of turn off the mind, to turn off the stress and allow our microbiology to chill and proliferate really good microbes. So it's very, very important. If you don't know how to meditate or haven't been able to really get into your meditation program, we have one called the Transformational Awareness Technique and I, and I designed it for two reasons. The first reason was because lots of folks don't have success when they meditate and they struggle. And so we have six meditations in a row that start very easy and drop you down to a deeper and deeper experience. Guaranteed to get everybody to go through and transcend their thinking and find that still place where our good microbes proliferate. Um, but also the reason why I created it was because the goal of Ayurveda is based on one simple phrase, and yoga and, and meditation and so many Vedic sciences are, are really based on this same phrase, which means first establish being and then perform action. But in our culture, we become really good at establishing the being, which means the silence, right? The eye of the hurricane, be still, be calm, meditate, do yoga, do breathing, be still, contemplation, tai chi. We have all these great techniques for being still, but I have yet to see any techniques that really engage in the action. What do you do after you meditate and become more self-aware of you know, all these things that you may have created as a result of the stress in your childhood and created personal patterns of behavior that you're still projecting on the screen today as an adult that are messing with your relationships and not making your life so wonderful? Based on that awareness, the being, you must perform action. And that action comes in this plane, in real life. So the Transformation Awareness Technique is a meditation program designed to give you tools to take your awareness and transformational action steps into your life. And hold your hand. I hold your hand through that process so I guide you through how to actually make deep transformational change. And to me, I haven't seen any other meditation technique do that, and I just think it's such a gross misinterpretation of what the Vedas are really about. Meditation is an awareness technique. And don't get me wrong, just meditating and being aware has phenomenal benefits for your health, but it's not the end of the benefit. 
it's clearly written that the benefit is in the action step that we take from the awareness that we get in the meditation. That's key. And when you meditate and act, you free yourself from old mental emotional patterns of behavior. And you know that it's the mind and the emotions and the cravings and the desires we have in our mind that make us think about food and crave this or that. It could be craving sex or money or power or fame. It could be craving dark chocolate or candy or Coke or chips or, or any of that. It's all the same chemistry. So stilling your mind, creating that awareness of calm, being aware of what you created as a young child to feel safe and secure, what patterns of behavior you're still projecting on the screen, and then take action to free yourself. Lay down new neural pavement in your brain to lay down new roads that you can drive down that are not based on needing something from the outside, but allowing you to free yourself. That's critically important. So that sort of wraps up, in a nutshell, uh, the basics of what we can do to eliminate our cravings. Now, a lot of it has, there's herbs we have to reset digestion uh, that are very important. I've got lots of articles, maybe the, the one blood sugar herb like Gymnema sylvester, the sugar destroyer herb we have is phenomenal to get that insulin resistance to stabilize. That's really, really important. Um, uh, uh, building up your nervous system if you're exhausted, if you're in a 20 foot hole, you have no energy, you definitely want to get up in the wintertime. Uh, I think that's really critically important from the perspective of um, uh, handling winter and rebuilding in the winter. Uh, herbs like ashwagandha to get that deep stamina back uh, are very, very important herbs in the winter. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention vitamin D, stabilizes blood sugar, boosts immunity, and supports mood stability. If you're low in vitamin D, you may be craving all because of that. Other deficiencies like vitamin B12 affects more than half the world's population. Another deficiency that literally, not even deficient, just low levels within normal ranges can shrink the volume of your brain studies show. And that's not good for brain function. And uh, But the good news is that if you take B12 sublingually, you can actually increase your brain size back. So luckily it's not a permanent problem when we shrink our brain. It sounds pretty bad, but, it, uh, it, but the studies show that it's not that bad. So that's good news. So um, I'm going to answer some questions now, and um, if you want to uh, talk to me, please push star two, and I'll check the phones here in a minute while I ask to answer some questions here. Um, these guys, right? Okay. All right. So, um, can you give me an idea how many grams of fiber a hundred pounds a person should have per day? Um, well. Um, Probably, and how much uh, fiber does, say, one cup of brown rice have? Uh, are three teaspoons of fat a good amount of fat to take in a day? Three teaspoons of fat, like a coconut oil, is a good amount. It's probably not going to be enough for the whole day, but again, you got to understand, like I said, it has to ramp up very easily and very gracefully. Um, fiber, um, uh, you probably, you know, if you're 100 pounds, you, you know, the 100 gatherers got on average. 100 grams of fiber per day. I think most folks should shoot for about 50 grams of fiber. I wrote an article about this exactly. You can go to the article and look at the whole chart about what has a lot of fiber. Beans are loaded with fiber. Brussels sprouts are loaded with fiber. Asparagus are loaded with fiber. Um, some starchy vegetables are loaded with fiber. The regular vegetables aren't really that fibrous as you might think. The big guys to get you up to the 50 and the higher numbers are going to be beans and certain very fibrous vegetables. I have a, uh, 
I built in an awful habit of reaching for chocolate whenever I get nervous about daily events or life or when I'm in a conflict. Conflict is not something I have ever handled well. I'm seeing that this is an enormous problem for me as yet I have not been able to eliminate myself from this habit. I've cut back and I'm very aware of it in my life. I think it's sugar I crave. Yes, you're right. I think we sort of answered that question um, because, you know, and here it is, chocolate, you know, you can get dark chocolate, and a little bit of dark chocolate is fine because if it's dark, it doesn't have that much sugar in it, but it has lots of other chemicals. There's one chemical in it called anandamide, which makes you blissful. Uh, it has other chemicals that provide euphoria and things like that. And while there has been no studies to show that that is actually bad for you, I think that if you're getting blissed out, some studies show that women prefer stark chocolate to sex because it's so much more enjoyable or it provides such a level of, of pleasure. That isn't necessarily a good thing. And so, so I think we have to be aware if something has a hook in you, like chocolate or wine or coffee has a hook in you and you need it to feel good, I wonder how good that's going to be for you long term. Dark chocolate here and there, no problem. Cup of coffee here, no problem. These are not problems, but they, when they begin to kind of consume you and begin to think about them, crave them, that becomes a problem. Uh, hopefully, I talked to you already about strategies to resolve this, and uh, hopefully a lot of these questions I've already answered in the lecture. I got I've been hypoglycemic all my life, but I have minimal symptoms while eating a low glycemic diet, which is a, a, a low sugar diet. However, I was surprised to find that when craving sweets, I drank licorice tea, my sugar came down quicker than if I just sipped hot tea. Um, or hot water. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the sweet taste and how it affects my body and blood sugar. And the same note, could you say something about stevia and how it affects both sugar and the dosha? Stevia, actually, I wrote some articles about stevia. Go to my, my website and read the article I wrote about stevia. And I was surprised myself. I was never a big stevia fan um, because it was sweet, right? And I feel like we have to sort of break the sweet thing, you know, and not just replace it with a fake sweet. Um, but stevia has been shown in studies to support healthy blood sugar, better digestion. There's a whole host of benefits people get when they actually take stevia, not processed stevia, but the raw stevia. Anything processed is going to have its issues. Um, so I have a hard time saying negative things about stevia, and I think it's a great um, stepping stone to get off the sweet altogether. And if there was a stepping stone, that would be one that seems to be okay. Um, Licorice has very beneficial effects for the adrenals. So when you drink licorice tea, it might be sweet, but you're getting this really nourishing, hey guys, I got the stress thing covered. And stress is what causes your blood sugar to go up. So the adrenals are, 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 and the blood sugar will be mitigated oftentimes by licorice tea that it won't get from hot water. Um, just to help you answer that question. Hi, John. I was wondering about vitamin deficiency and supplements for food cravings. Uh, some Ayurvedic doctors say that taking synthetic vitamins, not natural occurring kind in foods and herbs, is not in line with Ayurvedic principles. Um, it's true. I, I don't think you should take synthetic anything. I think if you, when you're going to take vitamins, they should be whole vitamins. I think that the real issue in our culture is not a vitamin deficiency, although there's a handful of them. I talked about them, B12, vitamin D are the big guys. Um, but minerals are really what we're deficient in as a culture, and they support chromium, for example, supports blood sugar, zinc supports blood sugar, magnesium has, has, has certain aspects related to blood sugar, and these are deficiencies that affect almost everyone. Um, 
One study back in 1948 showed that 99% of every American was deficient in at least one mineral. So this is a problem we've had way before fertilizers, way before, you know, all of our current problems. Um, so minerals, you know, you don't hear that the oranges are deficient in vitamin C, right? You don't hear that. You hear the, min the soils are deficient in minerals and the spinach doesn't have anywhere the iron it once did. We hear that and it's true. So minerals are the things that we sort of lack and I'm a, more of a fan of at a multi-mineral supplement that is naturally occurring and I, and I use one of those in our, my practice called essential minerals and I like that. If you're going to get a whole vitamin or a vitamin and take a vitamin supplement, then yes, a whole vitamin would work. Uh, the Ayurvedic source of that would be whole herbs or one or one form that we use is Chayavamprash, which is sort of a multi-mineral, multi-vitamin, easy to digest supplement. And I'm also a really big fan of not using extracted herbs unless you really need them as a, as a medicine to really solve your problem because when you, when you extract them, you, you soak them in, in alcohol and the microbes oftentimes disappear and are killed. And the microbes do the heavy lifting for so much function of our body. When you take whole herbs, the microbiology is intact. And that's really important as well. So be careful of extracts that might have been using alcohol that might have killed the microbiology. And also don't have all the constituents in them together. Uh, and that's where a lot of the vitamin minerals are, 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 are located. So that's important. What are the triggers for crunch cravings? Crunch cravings are, um, again, usually chips, right? And chips are salty. So crunchy things generally can be sweet or salty. And sweet, salty, and sour tastes calm vata. So our brain craves sweet, salty, and sour things to feel uh, better. Um, so that's sort of what happens when we eat a lot of sweet and salty and sour foods, which are... Uh, a little bit um, epidemic in our culture. So look, if you're craving sweet or salty, it's the same basic chemistry we talked about. Okay, now I just looked at the clock and it's 6.32. I know we started a little late, but uh, our hour is sort of up, so I want to respect your time. And if you and you got lots of information, I've given you all the information. I'm just going to spend some time here now answering a few extra questions that I didn't get around to because there are so many of them, and I appreciate your questions, and uh, I wish I could get to more of them, and I'll do the best I can right now to stay for a bit longer and answer some questions, okay? Uh, here's one. If one does eat sugar, can the results be offset by taking bitter herbs such as neem? Uh, to a certain extent, when you eat Ayurvedically, the idea was you eat all six tastes together, sweet, sour, salt, pungent, bitter, and astringent together, and then all the tastes provide a kind of a balanced experience and the word taste is rasa. The word emotion is rasa. So the same word for tasting is the same word for emotion. So when we taste our food, we're feeding our emotions. And all six tastes provide a balanced palate of emotional nutrition, which is important. It's a great question. And I've written a bunch of articles about that, by the way. If you want to go and dig in deeper about what each taste does, I've got a whole bunch of information about that. So go there for that. Um, how does one deal with cravings that start in the mind rather than the body? For example, the mind drawing you to places for things you crave rather than the body. Well, we know we don't always separate the mind and the body in Ayurveda. They're really the same, right? So if your brain is craving uh, something, 
then that is because your body didn't deliver that something to the brain. So it's really hard to separate the two. But if it's a stress thing, that could be a brain thing, and therefore, you know, meditation and stress reduction techniques like yoga, breathing, I didn't mention exercise, which is really important as well, those are really valuable. Um, if it's a body thing, then um, you might be thinking more along the lines of restoring blood sugar and the dopamine activators and things that we've talked about before. So hopefully that helps. Can coffee or, or caffeine trigger sugar cravings? Um, are you kidding? Coffee and caffeine are one of the biggest dopamine activators on the planet. So, you know, when people see the Starbucks logo, their brain already starts producing dopamine. You know, when people see the mall that has shopping in it, their brains already start to produce dopamine. And then when you go and you shop and you actually purchase the thing that you're so excited about buying and you swipe your card, your dopamine crashes. When it crashes, then you feel you need to have another something else to get out of that hole. That is what drives us. But caffeine and coffee may not be sugar, um, uh, you know, um, uh, cravings for sugar, but they trigger the same thing that sugar does, dopamine receptors in the brain. So they're really different ways of getting to the same thing. Shopping can do it, money can do it, fame can do it, power can do it, lots of things can do it. What do you suggest for craving sugar in the evening? Um, uh, having a really big lunch, having a lots of water in between meals, having a good balanced meal at supper, and then drinking and sipping water throughout the evening. Keep yourself hydrated. In one study, 80% of the cravings were due to dehydration. If you drank a big glass of water in 10 minutes, the craving was gone. So drink a lot of water. Even if it's a little bit of herb tea at night with no sweetener in it, yet keep yourself hydrated at night. That cuts the cravings a lot. And make sure you have a good dinner early, though. Balanced meal early. I follow your guidelines uh, for food for the last four years. That's great. Uh, the only thing I noticed, I have no energy to exercise anymore. I used to exercise, dance, exercise, low impact aerobics three to four times a week. Now I have no energy to do it. Um, so I'm not sure if this is good or bad. If the question is, why do I have no energy, or is it because you followed the food guideline for four years? I'm not sure. Um, there's lots of reasons why you could have no energy, and I'm not. I don't know if I have enough answer, information here to, to know what it is. A lot of things we talked about, meals, snacking, cravings, what your sugar levels are like. You know, there could be a thyroid issue, it could be a deficiency issue. There's so many reasons. Read some of my thyroid articles. That's sometimes one of the hidden things that cause fatigue. That's not giving you energy. Iodine deficiencies affect 72% of the world's population. That's another possibility. Um, but B12 is half the world's population. Vitamin D, 89% of the world's population. So these are all things that can definitely just rob you of energy that a good diet uh, you know, may be in place, but it's still not solving your deficiencies. So that's, that's important. Um, so thank you for that question. I'm going to swing over to the, uh, the phones to see if we have anybody answering uh, on the phone uh, who pushed star two, and I don't see any. So um, I'm going to, oh, there's one from uh, Honolulu. Are you there? Honolulu? Oh, you know what? I think I lost you. If you could just call back, I'm sorry. I think I lost you. I'll come back to you. Um, that was my bad. Sorry. Um, there you go. Are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Great. Thank you. 
I wanted to ask, um, is it possible someone could be tired because of, say, B12, they're, like, kind of anemic because absolutely. of the lack of... Um, that's absolutely. One of the, probably the most most common things that you would, you would, uh, you know, go to the doctor for and they would check your blood and find that you're anemic, and that, you know, is another factor. You know, great point and very common, and, and one of the things that we oftentimes overlook, and I overlooked it in this lecture because... Uh, you can crave or be tired for sure because of a lack of iron in your blood. Dates or have lots of iron in your blood. Uh, have lots of iron that helps support that, um, which are very good. Raisins are very good for that. But also get your blood checked to make sure that's not the case. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for that. Uh, another question from Oaklawn, Illinois. Are you there? Yes, I am. Question is, is there a difference between uh, burning fat that comes from your body tissues and burning fat that you consume in your diet, such as the olive oil or coconut oil you were talking about. Is there a difference between burning fat from your from your diet and burning fat from your fat? That's the question, right? Yes, from the tissues, right. Yeah, from your tissues. Well, yeah, when you burn your fat from food, you're burning fuel that you just ate. When you're burning fat from your cells, you're burning possibly stored fat. And when you burn stored fat, what's really cool about that is you're releasing whatever else is in there. And the fat-soluble toxins, molecules of emotion, environmental pesticides, preservatives, chemicals, heavy metals, they all find their way, because they're fat-soluble, they find their way stored in our fat cells. So when you become a good fat burner, this is exactly why I created the Colorado Cleanse, was because I wanted people to have become really good fat burners but before you go shovel out the yuck from your fat cells, you better make sure you have a good digestive system that knows what to do with those fats once you release them out of their cages because they're stuck away for a reason because the body didn't know what to do with them. And then when you release them, the body has to have the ability to detoxify them. That's why we always, when we cleanse, reset digestive strength first and then we cleanse. Very important to do that. So when you burn fat in your body, you're burning fat-soluble toxins, molecules of emotion, which means old mental emotional patterns are literally and well-documented to store in our fat as, as pre-recorded stress responses. So burning fat helps you actually change some of those old patterns of behavior. So it's really important for us to be good fat burners for that reason. Of course, lose weight, but also detoxify a lot of the fat-soluble chemicals is, uh, is important as well. Great question. Thanks for that. Um, okay, so uh, I'm going to swing back to uh, some other questions here and see if I can get one or two more. Uh, this is a question. Uh, recently, recently I be I've begun wanting more food just after I finish eating and notice when I'm out and between mealtime, my stomach may growl like it did years ago. This this all after I've been following the Ayurvedic protocol, which has served me well until now. Um, and I do not want to pack on excess pounds. Uh, I between two doshas, between two doshas, is, um, is this simply my having uh, to adjust between fall and winter? So what she's saying here is that um, when she um, her stomach is beginning to growl in between meals, as if she's not you know, getting enough fuel is what I'm, I'm, I'm getting here. And as we move into the winter, the digestive fire naturally increases. It becomes stronger. If you look at the foods that are harvested, 
Those foods are naturally more dense. They require stronger digestion. So if you don't deliver some of those foods and increase stronger digestion, you will, um, if you, don't, you will find that you are going to be craving more and more foods. And it's natural for us to crave and gain a little weight at this time of the year as well. It's very, very important. When you eat these seasonal foods that are more dense, we actually are getting different microbes that actually change our ability to digest, keep us warm, support immunity. These are all the things that are trying to happen in the winter months, which I think is very, very fascinating. Um, the other thing is that, so, so it might be just that we're going through this transition from summer to fall to winter, and we want to help beef up the digestive system, get it stronger, eat more food, and digest it. And a few pounds is actually okay this time of year. Don't resist that because that's nature trying to insulate you from the cold. It's what's supposed to happen. In fact, we're going to get ready to launch a program we're offering starting January 1st, which is called the, the Three Season Diet Challenge, where we're going to put out a sort of completely free program. Anybody can do it for free. And we're going to, every once a month in January for 12 months, we're going to give out recipes and diet and videos and excellent research for everybody to eat with the seasons for an entire year and see if we can change our microbes from one season to the next to the next because that's how we're designed. And that's what supports our immunity, our bone density, our ability to dissipate heat in the summer, handle mucus in the spring. All these things come from our microbes, but we don't do that anymore because we, we, we pesticide sprayed foods which kills the microbes. We eat foods out of season. We don't connect up to what nature had designed for us to stay healthy and vital. And, I, and I'm wondering if a, a lot of our problems that we have is because we're not doing a good enough job to eat with the seasons. I wrote a book called Three Seasons Diet about eating with the seasons back in 2000. And now with the research of the microbiome, I feel like that book is more compelling and more important than ever before because of the connection to our microbiome. So we're offering a free, completely free, one-year program. Anybody can sign up for it. It's really great. You can even sign up now um, to get, get, get geared up and get ready for January 1st. We're going to launch and send our first packet of information out. I'm excited about seeing the change. We're going to ask you some questions before and some questions after to see what happened, maybe even along the way. But uh, we're excited about that. So check that out. That might be something else that you can add. People have been following me for a while. This is really the next step for you know, us really connecting to nature and really getting that really organic you know, connection back to nature and getting the right microbes at the right time to support the right need for our body in the right season. Yeah, um, it's about 6.45, and I want to thank you all for, for joining us, and thank you for this call. And, uh, again, check out, um, check out the, uh, the Eat with the Seasons Challenge. We'll be starting that in January, uh, and we'll check in how that's going uh, with our next webinar, which comes in uh, in early January as well. So look out for that on our website. Thank you all for listening, and have a wonderful, wonderful holiday, and we'll talk soon.